Okay, if you have a Bible, 1009 is that page, Hebrews 13, and verse 3 is what we're going to be looking at. Let me pray while you turn there. Father God, we pray together now by faith, knowing that you hear us, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, this one congregation in Northeast Philly, in your big global family, and that you would be mindful of us, even as you're mindful of the whole world mindful to feed us with your word, mindful by your spirit to point us to your son, Jesus Christ, mindful to give us all the power we need to go from here, not just hearing your word and deceiving ourselves, but being transformed by it so that we do what it says. Make us people that love Christ and look different on account of our hour this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in our series on justice, and a few weeks ago, in fact, four weeks ago, in fact, Pastor Sibby stood here as he was getting ready to preach on the topic of abortion. And as he did, he began by just simply saying how honestly he felt so small in light of something so big. And then he said that how can a 30-minute sermon do justice to something this massive and big? And then two weeks ago, Pastor Binu began exactly the same way as he started to preach on racial reconciliation as he had spent his time thinking through with his mind poured over what has happened in our country historically, what's happening in our nation uh, nationally, what you've experienced personally, he just felt again so small in light of a topic that big. I sat there with you listening to those intros and now I'm on this side of it and I tell you this is now my turn. It's my turn to tell you because though we're just considering one verse, Hebrews 13 verse 3 in fact, this one verse that says, remember those who are in prison as those in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Just one verse. But what that verse does is push us to consider what's called the persecuted church. That is that there are brothers and sisters of ours in God's big global family who are in other parts of the world suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. That there are others who have been adopted by God the Father who by the filling of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that you and I have, worship the same Lord Jesus Christ and follow him just like you and I do, and yet even now they are imprisoned and persecuted and suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. And I can tell you this, as I've swim in, swam in this topic for some time now, what I have felt perhaps more than anything else is just an overwhelming sense of unworthiness to say anything. Right? In fact, in my head, it's, it's felt like this. It's a dumb analogy, but this is how it's felt in my head. In my head, it's felt like if you could picture a conversation between a, a fish in an aquarium at your home and a fish in the ocean. And, and if those two began to talk, you'd imagine that the fish in the ocean would ask questions like, what do you do for food? How do you find food? Do you, do you find certain places? Are there certain times? How, how do you scavenge and find food? And the fish in the aquarium would say something like, well, I never even think about that. Food comes quite regularly, all the time. My owner is very particular about my diet, and I'm sprinkled with food all the time. Is it not that way for you? And that other fish would say, no, not that way at all. And, and, and if that fish said, what do you do about danger? How do you evade predators? How do you survive? Do you swim in schools? How do you stay alive? What do you do in light of danger? This other fish might say, danger? What danger? I mean, sometimes there's some fish with us that we don't really like, but we stay away from them. But there, there's no danger ever at all. Is, is that not how it is for you? 
No, not, not at all. In fact, in my head, you'd imagine that at some point these two would talk and almost look at each other and go, are we the same thing? Right? Because your experience and mine seems to be worlds apart. That's what I've felt this week in considering how many of the experiences of followers of Jesus Christ throughout this big globe line up with my experience as a follower of Jesus Christ on this side of the globe. They feel like they are worlds apart. Because if we had a conversation with other brothers and sisters of Christ, if we had a conversation, for example, with Christians who survived through communist Russia, they might ask us, what do you do for food, spiritual food? What do you do for the word of God? Because you would read that there are stories of Christians in Russia, for example, of teachers who would come to elementary school with these unsuspecting kindergartens and hold up a Bible and say, do any of your homes have a book like this? And these unsuspecting kids would raise their hands, and before they got home, the government officials would be visiting mom and dad that day. Or, or you'd hear of stories of Muslim background believers in the Middle East, many of them hundreds of stories of seeing dreams and visions. And you'd hear stories, for example, of one that I read this week of a man who had a vision, and the vision was simply a big blue book. And the vision said, go find this book and read this Bible. He had no idea what a Bible was, no idea where to find in his country that book. And after months of this dream, one day he's in an Islamic bookstore out of all the places on earth, sees a wall filled with sea green books and one blue book. And wouldn't you know, he goes and picks up that book and buys that book in a Quranic store, reads it from cover to cover five times, and becomes himself a follower of Jesus Christ, just as his vision had said. Or you hear the story of Chinese underground Christian pastors, like the one that I read this week. At this gathering of these Christian pastors, they represent a network of underground house churches that represent some 10 million Christians. No exaggeration in that. 10 million Christians, these church pastors were there together. This one American missionary visitor was there among them, and one morning he saw that all these Chinese Christian pastors were in the courtyard, and it looked like they were ripping pages out of a book. As he got closer, he realized what they were doing is they were ripping pages out of the Bible. So now you can imagine him startled and confused, and as he went over, here's what he learned. He learned that the pastors that represent 10 million Christians in China had gathered, and yet seven of them had a copy of the whole Bible. And so it was decided the night before that as they left the conference, each church leader would be given at least one book of the Bible to take home and minister to their millions of people. And so there they were, ripping up, hoping that you could at least get Paul's letter to Timothy, and that you might get a copy of Genesis, and that you might get a copy of Hebrews. And if those Christians were to ask us, so what do you do for spiritual food? I would say to them, actually, I have more Bibles than I can count. I would say to them, I have every translation you can think of. I have ESV and NIV and King James and the New King James. I have it in every version you could think of. I have it in every kind of binding you could think of. I have it in leather bound, in hardback, in paperback, in digital form. I would tell them, not only that, I have men's Bibles and women's Bibles and children's Bibles and student Bibles and devotional Bibles and gospel-centered Bibles. I have no end to that thing. 
If those Christians came to us and asked us, how do you gather? If believers, for example, in Asia asked us, do you gather in underground networks like we do, where, you know, night by night, we switch from house to house and farm to farm, and overnight, we tell that code to one another so that we might know where to meet up. Or, or how do you sing? Do you do it like we do? Some believers in China who would gather three or four of them in a room and they would mouth the words of songs to each other. They couldn't sing lest their neighbor would hear them and call the secret police. And so they'd gather together and they'd mouth the words of hymns together. How do you do it? And we'd say, actually, we gather often and frequently and publicly. We do so in buildings. We do so in auditoriums. Sometimes we pack out stadiums. There is no end to our gatherings. We have retreats and conferences and seminars. There's no end to our access to music, to sing together. We have podcasts. We have Christian radio. We can sing whatever we want, whenever we want it. If these Asian believers would also then ask us, how are your pastors trained? I read this week that many during communist China just expected that at some point in their life, these pastors were going to go to prison. That wasn't like a weird thing or a rare thing. It was just expected that everyone would spend at least three years in prison. And in fact, when they recounted this, they described that those three years in prison was sort of like seminary for their pastors. That that was their formation of theological education. What an MDiv for me is equivalent for them is three years in prison. And as you hear these stories, now here's what I want you to say, or hear. As you hear them, you might think these stories peculiar, or odd, or extraordinary, but here's what I think we'd come to realize. It's our experience that is peculiar. Our experience that is quite odd. Our experience that is quite extraordinary. Because I want you to hear, we do not represent global Christianity. I was surprised to know. Do you know that 75% of the world's Christian population is outside the developed Western world? We Americans, we're used to being the first at everything that I think we should just remember. We're not representative of global Christianity. We're the minority in this conversation. Three-fourths of the world's Christians do not live in the West or in the Western world. In fact, China may soon become the largest Christian-populated nation on the planet. Some scholars tell us if you gave a profile of the typical global Christian, it would probably be either a Nigerian woman or a Chinese teenage girl. If there was such a thing as a typical Christian in the world, that's what it would be. And so what that means is our experience as American Christians is not the norm when it comes to God's big global family, of all the men, women, and children he has adopted into his family. And that is particularly the case when it comes to suffering or persecution. What we live through is not the norm. I read this book this, these few weeks called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. I would highly recommend it to you. I want you to hear, when I recommend you a book, you should read it because I'm not a big reader. And so if I read a book and loved it, I'm telling you, you would love it too. So consider this book, Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. And in it, he's got this section where he interviews a man who had come out of post-communist Eastern Europe. And he heard his stories about persecution and suffering. And this man simply said back to him, how are you not writing these things down? How are you not sharing them? If you tell me all of them, I could make a movie out of it. How are you not telling everyone? 
And this Christian man from Eastern Europe simply took Mr. Ripkin to a window facing east. And he said, can I ask you, Nick, do you wake your sons up every morning and tell them the sun is about to come out? The sun is about to come out. And he said, no, of course not, because the sun always comes out. And then this man went on to say, for us, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. It happens all the time. It's the way things are. There is nothing unusual or unexpected about it. Persecution for our faith has always been a normal part of life. We are not the norm. And when you think of the experience that we have as Christians versus the experience that Christians around the world, whether that be in North Korea or Somalia or Pakistan or Sudan or Syria or Yemen or Libya or India or Vietnam or Ethiopia or the Laos or on and on and on that list of countries would go, if you line up what their life looks like and you read the Bible and then you line up our life and you read the Bible, you begin to go, which one is peculiar? Which one is odd? For example, listen to what Jesus says, just this one section from Matthew 10. He says this to his disciples, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged <clears throat> before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Or just listen to what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, there's a lot more places we could go. You read through the book of Acts and you'll read how the spread of the church and the advance of the gospel lines right up with the spread of persecution and suffering for Jesus Christ. In fact, just Google and search the word persecute in the New Testament and see how often with what regularity it is spoken of and spoken as if it was just a given reality that this is the way life is going to be for Christians. And when I say all this, here's what I think. Pretty soon, you look at Christians in the other side of the world, and you look at us, like a fish in a fishbowl and a fish in the ocean, and you almost ask yourselves, are we the same thing? Because our experiences seem worlds apart. But I know the answer to that, and I want you to hear that. I know the answer to that is that what makes you a Christian is not what you do for Jesus, but what Jesus has done for you. Amen? That's true. I know that ultimately we are not saved by suffering for Jesus, but rather because Jesus Christ suffered for us. Amen. 
I know that we are not saved by any of our works, including being persecuted and dying for him. Rather, we are saved by his work, which was to be persecuted and die for us. Amen. That's the gospel. And because that is the gospel, I know that what God has for us is not to lead us into guilt. That's not the point of the morning. Because the gospel has said, you are not saved by what you will do from here on out. You are saved by what Jesus Christ has done for you. You are not saved by your suffering, nor being persecuted for him. You are saved by his suffering and his persecution for you. So you don't have to be guilty. That's not the point of what God wants for us this morning. I'm reminded back a few weeks ago to our race and the church dialogue. If you were here that evening, we spoke and we had a wonderful, honest conversation. After the conversation was done, one of our African-American brothers went to some of the white brothers and sisters and said, listen, you don't have to feel guilty for being white. That's not the point of this conversation. And, and they said that was so freeing to them to say, that's not what we're asking for. Instead, if I've heard right on these conversations about race, I think what's being asked by those in the margins is would you show empathy and solidarity? That you feel with us and stand with us. And I want to say, if our persecuted brothers and sisters, if Christians were here from India, if Christians were here from Vietnam, if Christians were here from Sudan or Ethiopia, I think they would tell us, brothers and sisters, we're not asking you to feel guilty for being Christians in America. But instead, what the scriptures are calling you to is empathy and solidarity. In fact, that's what I think is found in this verse. Look again at Hebrews 13, verse 3. Just one verse. Hear it with me. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now this verse is found in the last chapter of Hebrews. And if you read Hebrews 13, it's sort of like the writer has this scattered list of instructions before he's about to close. It's sort of like a, a mom. You can picture a mom about to walk out the door on a trip and giving some final instructions to the house, right? Make sure that you remember to take out the trash on Tuesday, lock the doors, turn on the alarm, your vitamins are on the table, don't fight with your sister. That kind of a scattered list of instructions. Well, Hebrews 13 ends in that similar kind of way. If you read 13, you'll find that he says everything from, listen, make sure that you show hospitality to strangers. Be content with the money that you have and don't love your money. Here's how you handle sexual purity in marriage, all the way down to how to treat Christian leaders and respect and obey those who are above you. I mean, just this scattered list of stuff. What's happening is he's concluding this book, and the writer has just finished in 1228 by saying, listen, you're receiving a kingdom. And he said, all this stuff that God is doing for you in Christ, and because of that, we should receive that with gratitude and worship God with reverence and awe. And 13 picks up as saying, and here's what it looks like to worship God with reverence and awe. Here's what it essentially looks like. If you understand all the theology of Hebrews, here's what that life is going to look like on the ground. Does that make sense? 13 is, here's practical Christianity, life uh, on the ground with faith in Christ. And so, 13.1 begins with a very practical instruction. Let brotherly love continue. You'll like this, by the way. Do you know what the word for brotherly love in the Greek is? 
It's our city, Philadelphia. So let Philadelphia continue is how it begins. Since you believe in Jesus, since you're receiving this kingdom with reverence and awe, let Philadelphia continue. Let brotherly love continue. And one of the ways that Philadelphia is going to continue, verse 3, is that you are going to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now, who are these people who are in prison? Who are the people who are being mistreated? In Hebrews, these are fellow Christians who have been imprisoned or mistreated for their faith. In fact, as you read through Hebrews, what you become aware is that this community that the writer is writing to is well aware of persecution. In fact, they personally know what brothers and sisters on the other side of the planet right now are going through because they've been there. In fact, if you turn back two pages to chapter 10, you'll hear earlier how acquainted they were. 10 verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Right? So this is a community that has been through persecution. They've known what it's like to have brothers and sisters from their church with them on Sunday and in jail by Monday. They've known what it's like to gather here. By the time they get home, all their stuff is taken. This is a community that had known persecution. In fact, when chapter 13 ends, 13 verse 23 says, hey, and also I want you to know Pastor Timothy has just been released from prison. So this is a community well acquainted with persecution, with suffering. These are the ones that the writer has in mind when he says, remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are mistreated. You see, this people in the writer to the Hebrews is writing is in that long company, beginning with Jesus himself and all the apostles, down throughout church history, down to our present day, who have known what it is to be mistreated and imprisoned for Christ. In fact, the history of the church would be you're just as likely almost to find Christians in jail cells as you are in church buildings. This is a long history. When I was younger, I'll give you an example. I had the privilege, and I didn't know it at the time because I was just an ignorant kid. I had the privilege of meeting this man named Richard Wombrand. If you ever heard that name, Richard Wombrand wrote this book called Tortured for Christ. He's the founder of this organization called Voice of the Martyrs. Richard Wombrand came to my cousin's house and had lunch with us, came to my home church and preached to us. I will never forget the opening line of Richard Wombrand's sermon. I was just a boy at the time, so this is 25-something years ago. I remember his opening line was, greetings to you, brothers in Christ. And then I think that was translated. And then he said, and a special greeting to you sisters in Christ. And he said, when you've spent 14 years in prison never having seen a woman, you especially greet the sisters in Christ, right? And I remember just laughing and thinking, this man has an incredible sense of humor until you heard or read his story. If you ever read Tortured for Christ, I met this man face to face. He would tell you of how he was an atheistic Jew growing up in Romania. Someone gave him a Bible, he read it over, saw Jesus' love in contrast with his hate, and was one to Christ. His wife became a convert. They did the only thing they knew to do, start a church and tell other people about Jesus. And so now this freshly new convert is a church planter in Romania. 
Well, the Russian communists come to Romania. And soon enough, persecution begins. In fact, in his story, there's this day where all these church leaders and pastors are meeting with Russian communist atheistic leaders. And one by one, he's listening as these church leaders are compromising on their faith, finding a way for communistic atheism and the church to coexist, and one after another are giving in and kowtowing and bowing down. His wife, Sabina Wombrand, nudges him and says, Richard, they are shaming the face of Christ. You must speak. He said back, if I do, you will lose your husband. To which she responded, I do not wish to have a coward as a husband. And so this man stood up and there began his persecution. Soon thereafter, he was kidnapped and for 14 years, he was put in prison, three of which he spent in solitary confinement. He recounts of the horrors of being in that Romanian prison. He recounts stories, for example, of having handcuffs put around your hands with nails inside. And if you stood perfectly still, you were fine. If your hand twitched, you were pierced. He spoke of standing in boxes the same way. They'd leave you in there for hours and days. And when your body eventually weakened and swayed, you were cut up. He spoke of being put in a freezer with a doctor looking to measure when you were just about to freeze to death, pull you out, give you blankets, warm you up, just to throw you back in over and over again. He spoke of brothers in, in that prison who were strung up on crosses and covered then with human excrement. In fact, all the prisoners were told to do their business on these men. And then those crosses were lifted up and the prison guards would say, look at your savior, what a fragrant offering to the heavens. He said, for 17 hours a day, you would hear this brainwashing over and over again. Communism is good. Communism is good. Communism is good. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Give up. Give up. Give up. For 17 hours a day, for years upon years. For eight and a half years, he was imprisoned, and his family didn't even know if he was alive or dead because they kidnapped him, and they had no word. During that same time, his wife Sabrina, Sabina Wombrand was also imprisoned. And he says that what happens to women, as you can imagine, held by male guards, was even worse than what happened to men. He said that that meant that his nine-year-old boy, at the age of nine, lost both mom and dad because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And anyone who wanted to take in that boy was themselves persecuted or imprisoned. And so this nine-year-old is fending for himself. And soon thereafter, in his story, he recounts that he abandoned his parents' faith because what kind of God would allow that? Two years later, when he was 11 years old, he got to visit his mom in the prison. He saw this real thin woman, hardly look like her anymore, dirty and skinny, come to him. She grabbed his hands, and the first thing that this mom said to her son was, Son, believe in Jesus. The guards heard that and whisked her away. And in that moment, that one second interaction, that little boy said, I was converted in a moment. That if she could still love Jesus after all that, in fact, his sentence was, if Christianity had no other arguments in its favor other than the fact that my mother believes in it, that is enough for me. 
And that boy went on to himself be a Christian, be persecuted himself. In fact, there's stories I could tell you for hours. After 14 years, Richard Wombram was finally released. He showed up before the U.S. Senate, stripped down to his waist, and revealed in his body 18 holes that the communists had put in him. Remember, Hebrews 13.3 says, what are you to do? You are to remember you are to remember that there are brothers and sisters to this day, this very hour, suffering and imprisoned for their faith in your Lord and your Savior. You are to remember, you are to keep them, as we're trying to do this morning, before our minds. That when we sing, we are to recall that right now, there are people huddled in small groups, mouthing words to each other. Because they cannot sing as you and I do. And if nothing else, it should help us know we will never mouth words meaninglessly again. For they mouth words meaningfully there. When we sing, we should remember that right now there are in prison cells across the world, as I've read account after account, right now, prison cells with the songs of Christ being sung in jail cells. Just like you read about in the book of Acts. It's still happening today. Because that God is still alive and so are his followers. And jail cells in the Middle East are filled with the chorus that we would sing here. We should remember. We should be mindful. We should remember. When we open our Bibles, we should think of Chinese believers who are ripping these Bibles to pieces so that one might have a copy of 1 John. Or one might have one chapter of Jude to take back and minister to hundreds and thousands and millions. We should remember when we come to communion today and remember that we're part of the family of God. We should remember that when there are bread pieces and cups left over here, not taken, that there are brothers and sisters who would literally die to be able to take that with us, to remember the body of Christ and share in the cup of his blood with us. We should remember. And if you ask, how should we remember? I think the verse would say, with empathy and with solidarity. Hear it again. Remember those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. How? As though in prison with them, since you also are in the body. Empathy. I think that's what since you also are in the body is getting at. Empathy. Right? This phrase here doesn't mean since you're part of the body of Christ. It's actually much more literal. It's saying since you literally have a body. Since you know physically, psychologically, emotionally, relationally what this would be like. Since you have a body, remember them that way. Empathy, right? You can feel what this is like since you also have a body. It'd be saying to us, since you have a body, you can imagine what it's like for Christians in China, as I read this week, to have their heads shoved into a toilet after it's been used. You have a body, you can imagine what that's like. Since you have a body, you can imagine what it's like to spend three years in solitary confinement and have no one and nobody to speak to other than your prison guard that brings you bread. Since you have a body, since you know what it's like relationally, emotionally, psychologically, physically, you can imagine what it's like in one account I read of a father going to his family, sitting them down and saying, tomorrow the police are coming. And that means that dad is going to prison. And then saying to this family, what they do in our nation now is they hang people who believe in Jesus Christ. And this dad saying to his children, if in prison I hear that my wife and children hanged because they would not deny Jesus Christ, I would be the most proud man in that prison. Since you have a body, you can imagine what that would be like. 
to sit down with your family and have that conversation. Remember how, with empathy, since you have a body, and with solidarity, what does he say? As though in prison with them. How are you to remember? Remember as though you were in prison with them. So while you're here, you should picture them here with us. But while they're there, you should picture yourself there with them. You should picture yourself as their cellmate. You should identify this text is saying in such a way that you have such solidarity, one with them, that it's as if you were their cellmate, as though in prison with them. I began to think, this is how Jesus identifies with the persecuted church. When Saul was persecuting the church, he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? This was his body. And he had so identified with his people that persecution to them was persecution to him. You are to remember them in such a way, it's as though you were there. That you stand in such solidarity with them that that might lead you to ask questions like, what would I want other Christians to do if I were in prison? As though I were in prison. So if I were there, what would I want other Christians to do? What would I want the family of God's people to do? If I were in prison, you'd come up with answers like, I'd imagine that I would hope that they would work for my release, if at all possible. I'd certainly hope that church members in my church would take care of my wife and my kids, that they would be mindful of them as I suffer for Christ. You'd imagine all of them would say you'd want them to pray. You'd want people to be praying for you. I was reminded of this verse from Acts 12. Peter's in prison. It says this in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. This brother was in prison, but that meant the church called special prayer meetings, and they were not going to stop praying for their brother Peter. I can tell you in Ripken's book, I, I read accounts. He would go to these Chinese underground Christians, and they had been so sheltered from the West, rest of the world in their secret churches. They asked him, let me ask you, Brother Ripken, are there Christians in other countries also, or is Jesus only known in China? The man was taken aback. He began to tell them how widespread and rampant Christianity was. He went on to tell them that even the life of Chinese Christians were known by other believers, that they were being prayed for by brothers and sisters in America. He said these Chinese believers were floored. In fact, what they said back is, are you really saying they know us? They remember us? They haven't forgotten us? They pray for us? He said that they went on to ask, is there persecution in other places? And he began to recount to them what brothers and sisters in Muslim countries are going through. He said the next morning he went and found all these Christian leaders weeping and wailing in the courtyard. And when he asked what it was, he said that they were so moved to hear that there were others who were really being persecuted, unlike them. That they vowed before God that they would wake up an hour earlier each day to pray that Jesus might be known to every last person in those two countries. He then went on to say that he went to those two countries in the Middle East. And when he told those Muslim believers that there are Chinese leaders, over 10 million people, who are calling their people to pray for you every morning for an hour. These Muslim believers, background believers, exclaimed, Lord Jesus... Let us live long enough to go to China and thank our brothers and sisters for praying for us. Listen, this is all happening outside of the Western world. And so we should pray as we remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those mistreated since we also are in the body. 
What might we pray on your seats is a sheet. For the sake of time, I won't go through it, but I would encourage you, fold that up, put it in your pocket or in your Bible, take it home. And throughout this week, grab one and pray in your family devotional time over one of them. There's about 16 of them. You'd, you'd have stuff to pray for 16 weeks. You could use one of them in your daily devotional time. Pray. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those mistreated since you also are in the body. Let me just end by saying this. We have said this morning what we might do for the persecuted church. We might remember them. How? With empathy and solidarity. As though in prison with them since we also have a body. But as we remember them, I just want to end by telling you there's something the persecuted church does for us. This is what we might do for them. Remember them. There's something that the persecuted church does for us. If you're here and you identify with Jesus Christ, do not our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world challenge us this morning. Not condemn us, but do they not convict us? Do they not make you ask yourself questions like, how much do I really believe the Bible? Do they not make you ask questions like, is the God of this book still alive and at work in the world today with the same power he seemed to have back then? Does it not make you ask your questions like, how much do I really love Jesus? And is my relationship with Jesus this concept that I believe in or real person that I walk with? I tell you, Nobody dies for a set of doctrine. They die for a person they love. Do I love the Lord Jesus? Do I walk with him? Does he walk with me? Do I have a relationship with him? Questions like, is Jesus really worth it? And by it, meaning that it is the dearest things of your life, like your life, or even harder still, your spouse's life, or hardest of all, your children's life. Is Jesus worth it in a way that the rest of the Christian world seems to say he is? Questions like, do I really believe that people are lost? And do I care enough that I would actually say something to them about it? Because ultimately what persecution is about, as I've read this book, as I've studied, I think that ultimately what persecution is about is not torture, is not suffering. Ultimately, the aim of persecution is just to get the gospel to stop, just to get no more spreading of Jesus. You don't spread Jesus, there's no more persecution. If you keep faith personal and private, there's no more persecution. So in any country, all you have to do is keep faith personal and private. The reason there's persecution is when it won't be personal and private. And so we'd ask ourselves, as this book made me ask me, will we give up in freedom what our brothers and sisters won't give up in persecution, namely witness to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ? Will we keep quiet in freedom what they will not keep quiet even in persecution about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would simply say to you, one, on our behalf, all we would say to you is you have to forgive us. 
You have to forgive us that we haven't always modeled the kind of devotion and faith and boldness that our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world have that might convince you that Jesus actually is true and worth everything in your life. And on behalf of God, what I'd say to you if you're here and you're not a Christian is would you consider this is how much God loves you. He is so in love with people all around the world that do not know him that he would send his own son like a father considering what it's like to lose their child. He has already led the way and sent his son to be persecuted and die for you and then called all the followers of his son to be willing to be persecuted and die so that people like you all over the world who do not know him would. Such is the love of God. And if our testimony hasn't been enough, would you let the testimony of Christians around the world make you wonder if they're willing to die for him? How real and worthy is he? Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let's pray together.